John chapter 21. Turn there with me, please, for the very last time. You can read the book whenever you want, but this is the last time we'll be studying it together. And uh, it's been a great ride here, 72 sermons. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter is our way in which we preach primarily through Scripture. So John chapter 21, what I'm going to do, let me see what time it is. Um, I'm, I'm going to read through this. I turn to chapter 21, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel account of one gospel. His name is Jesus. John chapter 21. I'm going to read the entire narrative, and then we're going to pick up the last few verses, okay? John chapter 21, last chapter of the gospel according to John. Verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He had revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together, seven guys. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but, they, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast a net out on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, it was the Lord. He put his outer garment for his was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught, just caught. So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to him, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Simon said to Peter, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. Verse 17, Jesus said to him again a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you were stretched out your hand, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, that's Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that his disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but it is my, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Verse 25 to close. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy, infallible word. Okay, so kids, you're dismissed. For Children's Church, we are staying in chapter 21. Someone once said, and I think I mentioned this back in Sermon 1 a year and a half ago. Someone once said, I think it was Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, the book of John is shallow enough for a child to wade in and deep enough to drown an elephant. That's been true. This book study has been beneficial, I think, for newer followers of Christ that are here, getting to know Jesus a little better, getting to understand Jesus a little bit better. And then for some of us who've been walking with Christ a little bit longer, it's been a swim out in deep waters. As we shall see, according to our text, discipleship and walking with Jesus and following Jesus looks different. We're in different places, but he's still the same Lord and Master. The last chapter right here in chapter 21 is Jesus' third post-resurrection appearance to his disciples. If you look in chapter 20, it was the first time he showed up. It's Sunday night, resurrection evening. Chapter 20, verse 19, everyone's afraid, they're locked in rooms, and Jesus just walks right through the walls and appears to his disciples. The next time he shows up in his post-resurrection is the following Sunday evening. They're still, again, locked in a room, scared, and he again appears and walks right through the walls. Chapter 20, verse 26 through 29. It was that second appearance, eight days after his first appearance, that he showed himself to Thomas. Come, Thomas, put your hand in my side. See my, see my palms, see my feet. No, this is me, Thomas. And then Thomas seizes the Lord and rightly, rightly worships the risen Christ by pronouncing, my Lord and my God. And now in chapter 1, 21, it's sometime after that. We don't know exactly when. John doesn't tell us. It's the third appearance. Jesus is by the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee, north of Jerusalem. Chapter 21, we said, is the prologue, the wrapping up of loose ends. As I said last week, the epilogue, excuse me, the pro, epilogue, not the prologue. I said that in the first service too. Chapter 21 is the epilogue, the wrapping up of loose ends. And I said last week, the epilogue has a name. His name is Peter. It's all about Peter. Now, Peter's not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of every story, every narrative. And what Peter is is a recipient of forgiveness, of love, and the grace that Jesus bestows upon him. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Jesus shows up, third post-resurrection uh, appearance, and invites his disciples to breakfast. The scene reminiscent of an earlier scene in Luke 5 is now Jesus summoning, summoning his, his apostles and Peter to remember the call of Luke 5 to be fishers of men, to join Jesus as he lives through his church, through his people, 
in demonstrating and declaring the gospel. He's on mission, seeking and saving the lost. He's calling everyone everywhere to repent of sin and to believe and trust in Christ, who is the gospel. Remember the call, verses 1 through 14. Verses 15 through 19, Jesus is restoring Peter in love. He, he's entrusting Peter, as we saw last week, caring and tending and providing for the people of God, the flock of God. And we said that Peter's restoration to his apostolic authority, to his pastoral ministry, uh, it can be unique to him to some degree, maybe unique to other pastors to feed and care for, care for God's people. But we said last week, it was a great reminder that God loves each and every one of us. And that we, like Peter, can plunge our failures into God's grace, be forgiven and used mightily of God. It humbled Peter. Paul said to us, the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians that uh, due to a thorn that was given to him in the flesh, he, he asked the Lord three times to take it from him. And God told uh, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is for, sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My power, God is saying, is made perfect, made complete in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can rest upon me. Yes, weak. Yes, I have failed. I will plunge them into the grace and mercy of God. And notice what Paul says. My grace is, is sufficient. Power is made perfect in weakness. That God's grace is not just passive. It, it's not just passive. God's grace is power. Forgiveness. Power. Enablement. That's the grace of God. So he first reminds them of the call. Then he restores Peter in love. And now the last few verses, he's redirecting Peter for discipleship. That's where we're at. Redirecting Peter for discipleship. Three headings, very simple. Number one, distraction. We all can be distracted from our walk with the Lord. Number two, direction. We need to go in the same direction. That's following Christ. And number three, documentation. John wants to show us his testimony is true. That's our, that's our outline. Number one, distraction. Now, go back to verse 18 of chapter 21. And I want to put this in context. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, truly, truly. That's a way to say solemnly, solemnly, solemnly this can't change. It, it's, it, it's, it's going to happen. I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Lord Jesus, what are you talking about? I'll tell you. Verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter, he, was to glorify God. So verse 18 comes right after Peter's restoration we said last week that Peter denied the Lord three times on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. It was a cold evening, and Peter was by a charcoal fire warming himself. He denies the Lord three times, and on the third time, the Lord looks at him, and he looks at the Lord. And there's Jesus, chapter 21, by a charcoal fire again. And he asks him three times, do you love me? He even calls him by his own old name, Simon. 
said last week, deep wounds from a loving surgeon that brought deep humility to Peter. Peter's restoration not only restored him and propelled him to feed and care for God's people, but it would be critical for Peter because of his death. Look what he says. When you're old, you, are stretched out your, you will stretch out your hands. Stretched out, we know, means crucifixion. Peter was martyred by being crucified, by suffering crucifixion. Now, Jesus too was crucified. Jesus alone can die as an atonement for sin. He alone is the perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But there were hundreds, if not thousands of people that were crucified. So Peter here is crucified following the Lord's step. The Lord only can atone for sin, but he dies in that way. He he is martyred uh, under the sovereignty and, 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 and the purposes of God. Peter would die by crucifixion, but it would not end in tragedy. It would end in what? Glory. Our death, if we belong to Christ, can end in glory too. I mentioned this verse last week. I just want to say it again. Paul told the church in Philippi. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. I'm going to honor God in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. That's the context. Verse 19, again, back in chapter 21, verse 19c. After saying this, you're going to die a martyr's death. You're going to suffer a martyr's death. Jesus turns and says to Peter, follow me. You're going to die a martyr's death, Peter? Never mind that. Follow me. Present tense. In the Greek, it's continuous. And it's an imperative. It's a command. It's not like let's up for discussion. Let's, let's roll the dice. Let's flip a coin. It's imperative. Peter, keep on following me. Now, Peter has followed Christ before, but we know in his denial, it wasn't continuous. And here we see Peter again blowing it. I mean, all of us can relate to Peter. I know I can. Right? When you think you got it, you immediately blow it. <laughs> verse 20. Look, look at the text. Verse 20. You follow me. <laughs> Peter turned. Stop right there. Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death, but you know what, Peter? Keep on following me. Let's go. Peter goes, huh? <laughs> really, Peter? You're looking around? I just said, follow me. I just told you you were going to die a martyr's death. I just told you that I'm sovereign Lord. I just gave you all this fish. Everything is going on. You're, you're going to feed my sheep. You're going to care. I trust you, you with my sheep. I'm forgiving you. I'm restoring you. I'm commanding you to follow me. And then you go and look around. And then say, what about him? John, the youngest of the disciples, maybe like a kid brother to Peter. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John. The one who leaned back. He's going back to chapter 13 on the upper room in the Last Supper. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper. There's significant intimacy there. He's right next to Jesus. That's John. It's the same one who said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So John asked Jesus that question in the upper room. You know why? Because Peter told John to ask him. You're so close to the Lord, he's talking about someone betraying you on the night in which he was betrayed. Peter says to, says to John, ask him who it is. So there's intimacy here. There, there's connection. There's relationship here. 
Peter saw him, he says to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? Lord, what about the guy that is the one whom you love? What about this guy, the one who is next to you, leaning on you on the, at the supper of the Last Supper? You know, that guy who seems to be humble, the guy who seems to get it right, the guy who seems to be the one who's minding his own business that's close to you, that guy, what about that guy? What is John doing? Do, do we know what John was doing at the time? We do. Look at chapter 21 again, verse 20 again. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, what? Following them. What is John doing? What are you supposed to do? Jealousy, by comparison, will get you distracted. It's a deadly trap. It's easy to be distracted and and then lose focus, especially when you look at other people's success or other people's appears to be ease. Jesus is like, Peter, don't compare yourself with anybody else. Don't ask me what's in store for somebody else. You keep on following me wherever I lead you. Jealousy of others, comparing yourself to others can cause you to miss the perfect will of God in your life and cause you to turn. What about, what about, what about, what about? In 2015, Forbes magazine had a study. Here's the title of the study. New study links Facebook to depression. But now we actually understand why. Here's a quote. The social network has been linked to a surprising number of undesirable mental health consequences. Depression, low self-esteem, and bitter jealousy among them. Now a new study in the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology finds that not only do Facebook and depressive symptoms go hand in hand, but the mediating the mediating factor seems to be a well-established psychological phenomenon, social comparison. That is, making comparisons often between our most humdrum moments and our friends' highlight reels. The vacation montage, the, the cute baby pics, is what links Facebook time and depressive, sim- depressive symptoms together, end quote. <laughs> what about that guy? Is he going to have it hard? You're telling me I'm going to a martyr's death and be crucified? I want to know what's going on with him. He seems like he's got it easy. Jealousy, comparison. What else gets us distracted? I wrote down a couple things. You could talk about it in community group. Inadequacy. Maybe you feel like, you know what, poor me, I can't do anything right. I never will have enough stuff, the right stuff to follow Jesus. Good, because you don't. Neither do I. That's why he empowers us to do so. That's why we need his enabling grace to do so. Yeah, we have responsibility to keep in step. But remember, God gives us his Holy Spirit that awakens our hearts, gives us new life, and the ability to follow him. We are inadequate, but he's adequate. Maybe it's hurt. Maybe you've been hurt by another church or another pastor or another, and that's gotten you distracted from following Christ. Maybe it's fear. Maybe you're afraid what others might say. Maybe you're afraid to make that public announcement, I'm a follower of Christ, and I, you can reject me for it, you can be hated for it, but I'm going to follow Jesus. Maybe it's self-reliance. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. I got it from here. Thank you. Actually, just come along with me as I follow myself, and if I need your help, I'll just reach out and ask you. Even good things can become a distraction. Children. Bless their soul. 
worship them, they will distract you from your following Christ. In fact, you will, you will guarantee have your priorities messed up. Even our concern for others, a good cause, can actually sidetrack you from facing God's personal call on your life to follow him. We get distracted by God's purposes and God's providences for others when we should be concerned about our own providence that God has for us, our own purposes that he's called us to. It's simple. If we follow Jesus Christ, our eyes will be on Jesus. He will be our all in all. If you have your eyes on others or even yourself, you either expect people to measure up to you and judge them to be inferior if they don't, or you don't live up to your own standard and you become discouraged and you fail to see your own uniqueness and individuality of following Christ. But listen, if you keep your eyes on the crucified and risen Lord and the gospel, you'll continually realize how holy and perfect he is and how holy and perfect you are not. And as my understanding of my sin by looking into his holiness grows, something else happens. My appreciation, my love, my, 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 my desire, my devotion to Christ grows. You see, if we just look at our sin by itself, it will cause us to be distracted. How could we ever do that? But if we look at his grace and his mercy, his mediation, his sacrifice, his righteousness, his gracious work on my behalf, when we see that, what increases is a sweet love and devotion to our Savior. Keeping my eyes on Jesus and his gracious work of atonement brings joy and humility. It will bring confidence, it's not me, and brokenness, I need a Savior. Because of what Jesus has done, we don't need to be afraid. We can come, he sees us as we are. We can admit our brokenness. We can admit, admit that we are undone because he is done. He has done all that needs to be done on our behalf. Peter, you're called to pastoral ministry and then to martyrdom. John, to a life, a long life. Both used, Peter and John, in different ways, at different places, but both of their callings and your calling are vital and equally important. Don't be distracted, Jesus is saying to us. Follow me. Learn to lean to love me. Follow me. Follow me. That's the direction. Follow me. Don't be distracted. Direction, verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will, think about that for a minute. Just stop there one second. If it is my will, who could say that but God? This is a free, this ain't nothing to do with the sermon. I'm just saying, <laughs> a clear indication of his deity. No one says, if it's my will, if you live or not. Jesus can, because he's sovereign Lord, right? If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You, second time, follow me. Jesus refuses to gratify Peter's curiosity. It's none of your business, Peter. It's none of your business, Peter, what happens to anyone else, including John. And I think it's just a little bit of slight sarcasm myself. Maybe it's the Bronx coming out. I don't know. But it reminds me of that, you know, this impulsive leader of this apostolic gang. Uh, it's out of your control, Peter. Don't worry about him. I, my will will take place. You just follow me. Not to say that God's not concerned about others. He's not saying, Peter, it doesn't really matter what happens to John. But it was just a way to get Peter, you know, off of his distractions and going in the right direction, taking his own individual responsibilities before God. Even if Jesus wills that John remains, that's, that's none of Peter's business. 
You know, it's easy for me to see other pastors too. You know, we go to these conferences and they got these large followings and these impacts these, these pastors are making, Piper, Keller, and go on and on and on. And think, man, you know, I'd love to make that impact. I'm just not as bright as they are, to be honest, but that's okay. You know, I've learned a lot from them, but you know what? I'm me. You're you. And the bottom line is, that's just God's will and God's providence. I have unique gifts. They have unique gifts. It's okay. I'm going to rejoice in how God is using these men because God's getting the glory, not Lou, and not John Piper, or not any of those pastors. We are all need just what? To be faithful. We need to be faithful. You and I need to be faithful. We need to keep our eyes in one direction, and that's following Jesus. Be faithful to Jesus. Jesus tells Peter to be content with his own calling, moving in the right direction, following the Lord. It's really a, it's really a lesson on personal discipleship. Well, before we move forward, let me, let me just define that for you, okay? What is a disciple? We hear a lot about that these days. What is a disciple? A disciple literally means a learner. A disciple attaches himself or herself to someone, a teacher, and identifies with them and learns from them. Not just simply learning and watching, but also by doing. Following the leader they're doing. Someone who is a disciple of Jesus Christ becomes a disciple, becomes a follower, becomes a Christian when he or she responds to the gospel and the call to follow Jesus, to repent from sin and to believe on Christ. Therefore, discipleship should always, always, always resound around the work, the word, and the person of Christ. That's why we call it gospel-centered, Christ-centered discipleship. Not about the pastor, not about the author of any book. All that stuff is good, have its place, but discipleship is about Jesus. It is about learning the gospel, constantly learning the gospel. It's appropriating the gospel. It's learning the gospel. It's applying the gospel to your life. And then it's communicating the gospel to others. Disciples making disciples. It's transformation. I'm becoming more like Christ through the work of the Spirit. We're going to do the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's, it's transformation. It's assimilation. I'm walking with Jesus, doing what Jesus does. And then it's dissemination. It's disciples making disciples. Let me say this too. Discipleship is a lifelong process. If you ever meet someone who thinks that they have attained it, run. Because there's always sin to be repented of. Right? Discipleship is a, is a lifelong until Christ comes, until we are glorified. And, and we need to learn. We need to teach each other how to read, to understand, to respond, to apply and obey God's word. And that's what Jesus is asking Peter to do. Follow me. Follow me, he's telling that to you today. Follow me, learn from me, walk with me, obey me, and, and worship me. That, that's what Jesus is saying. And this is not, discipleship not, is not adding Jesus to my busy life. Okay, so in other words, I've got a lot of stuff going on in my life, and then I'm, I'm going to add Jesus to that. I'm going to somehow compartmentalize this person. It's not adding Jesus to an already busy life. It is It is making Jesus Lord and Savior. It's not like, well, this is appropriate. I'm going to bring Jesus with me, and this isn't appropriate, so I'm going to leave him behind. Discipleship is the call to follow means it's a 180-degree turn in a different direction. You're walking one way, you are turning, and now you're following, taking your cues from the King of Kings. He is the rightful Lord of all that you are and all that you have. Discipleship means by His grace, And because he rescued us from the penalty of sin, by his sin-bearing atonement on the cross, resurrection from the grave, we seek now his will for our life and submit to that will. That's the call of the gospel. 
to turn, repent, and believe. And that will resolve in a different direction. Following Jesus. It doesn't get any more really complicated than that. No no longer walking as you will, you're walking as he wills. There's something else in this text that I want you to see. As I said earlier, John is walking too. So you have Jesus and Peter, John following, and I believe, I know the text doesn't say that, but I'm going to say this. I think the other six men or five other men were following as well. I, I think as Jesus is walking away, talking with Peter, and John is following, I think everyone's following. He just happens to point to John. So Peter's not alone as he's walking with Christ. See, we have different temperaments. We have different gifts. We have different talents. We have different circumstances. I get that. But we're collectively walking, following one Lord, one faith, one baptism. How did Jesus do discipleship? How did Jesus live his life of faith? He lived it with others. Discipleship is not in isolation, but in community. They're made in community. And, and perhaps we struggle in the church by making disciples who make disciples because we're still trying to figure out how to live in community. Discipleship, I read somewhere, is truth transferred through meaningful relationships. It happens through life on life and not in a vacuum. It's that simple. Now, this ain't a sales pitch. Not a sales pitch. One of our core values. Some of you are not going to like this, but the scriptures are really clear concerning community. There is no such thing in the New Testament. There is no such thing in the New Testament where followers of Christ are not connected to a local gathering, other people with other people following Christ. You cannot, according to Scripture, be a faithful follower of Jesus alone. Or just you and your spouse. We need the people of God. I understand it gets messy. I understand their heartaches. I understand that. That's why it has to be gospel-centered. There has to be forgiveness. There has to be patience. There has to be kindness, all the fruit of the Spirit in your community, in your gathering. We have this 21st century mindset of this individuality, and and that's that's not the gospel. That's antithetical to the gospel. Gospel community means we live with each other deeply, Caring, loving, serving one another. Now, let me show you how ingrained this is in our culture. Listen to Paul's imperative. Again, another command. Paul tells the Philippian church this in chapter 4, verse 4. You've heard this before. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. The first thing we think is, okay, I I need to be happy all the time. I I just need to rejoice all the time. He says, all the time, rejoice. i got to be happy all the time, rejoice. That's not what it says. Rejoice in the Lord always is not singular. <laughs> He's talking to the body. In fact, the original language, it's plural. What, what, what Paul is saying is, you need to rejoice, y'all, y'all, need to rejoice in the Lord always. The truth is, we're never ever, we are never able to rejoice in the Lord always by yourself. But if we're connected with each other, In community, if we're connected in the body, there's always someone there to pick you up to rejoice with you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. You can't do that unless you know someone, someone knows you. Mourn with those who mourn. You can't mourn with someone unless you know someone and someone knows you. See, we have a way of reading this individuality into scripture. Another one, Hebrews 13, 5. Listen to what it says. Make sure... That your character is free from the love of money. 
being content with what you have. Now you're thinking, okay, I got to go in my house and I got to figure out all my... I got I to gotta be careful. I don't, I, I don't want greed to be a problem. I, I don't want to... I, I want, I want to make sure my character is free from the love of money, the greed of money. So I got to figure out my plans. That's not what it says. It says... Make sure that your character is free from love money, being content with what all of you have. How do you work out greed together? You serve one another. You're generous with one another. You're in ministry together. You're you're serving together. You're generous together. That's how you work out greed. One last one. I mention this all the time, but I'm going to do it again anyway. Put on the full armor of God. In order to stand against the devil's schemes, the Bible says put on the full armor of God. And what we have in mind is one dude or one kid, depending on if you've been to Sunday school, with all this full armor on, it looks like it belongs to someone twice his size, and he's barely holding his sword up. There are so many plural pronouns in Ephesians 6. It's about the community. We're all each supposed to take on the armor of God. As a community, we rejoice in the Lord. As a community, we wrestle with issues of greed. As a community, we fight against the world forces of darkness together. To watch each other's back and fight the enemy together. Listen, I, we're all followers of the same living God. I get that. We have temperaments and gifts and culture differences and circumstances. But we're, we're worshiping the same God. We're serving the same Lord. We're being changed into the same image of Christ by the same Holy Spirit. So it is both Peter, follow me, and communal. Now look at verse 22. Jesus says, I believe life sarcasm, verse 22, was taken the wrong way. It says this. If it is my will, he says to Peter, that he, John, remain until I come, what is that to you? Verse 23. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers. So the word went out that this disciple, that's John, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? See what John is doing? John is clarifying something that was flying around that was not true. Believe it or not, sometimes rumors aren't true. I know that's hard to believe. John wants us to be clear on what Jesus said. I wanted this testimony to be right. And what Jesus said and what Jesus did not say. In fact, the Greek word but is a strong adversative. It's, it, it's antithetical to what Jesus was trying to say. So John hears about this room as he's writing this gospel and thought it would be wise to correct those of us, that's us, who are reading this gospel account. Why? Because if, G, excuse me, if John died and Jesus had not returned, either Jesus got John's fate wrong, he was wrong about the prophecy of John about being alive, or Jesus is wrong in the prophecy about his coming. Now, we know guys like Harold Camping love to talk about Jesus' coming, but John wants to straighten that out, right? John's like, look, he didn't say any of that. He just said, it's my will. Don't, don't worry about it, Peter. I'll make that decision. That's all he's saying. Because John didn't want the possibility of someone reading saying, well, that's what Jesus said. But John's dead. Jesus hasn't returned. Maybe he didn't listen to Harold Camping. He should have. I don't know. That's a joke. But okay. My wife got it, so that's good. Peter writes, where's the, Peter writes in, in his letter that scoffers will mock believers. And they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Listen, we don't know when, right? We don't know when. So you have distractions, you have direction, follow me, don't worry about anybody else. And then finally we come to documentation. Now we have the conclusion and the authentication of the epilogue. Verse 24, this is the disciple, that's John, 
who is bearing witness about these things, and who, same guy, has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. The disciple we know is John. He's an eyewitness and an apostle of the perfect life, the death, and now resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is totally appropriate and understandable that he would end his gospel account with the word witness. We have seen the credibility of witnesses and the witness of others is a, is a major theme, one of the key themes in the gospel according to John, used over 45 times, witness, testimony, witness. John witnessed these events himself. This is not hearsay. This is not folklore. This is not some professor in some local college, faraway college, who's 2,000 years removed from the apostolic eyewitness account and says it never happened. This is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life. John saw it, John wrote it, and it's a beautiful and moving conclusion of this glorious gospel narrative. Now, John says we, you see that? Plural pronoun, and we know that his testimony is true. Some people think, you know what, John was in Ephesus, maybe, maybe the Ephesian elders were there with him giving testimony. Um, I happen to think that John is using what is called an editorial, we. He, he, he mentions that in 1 John 1. He talks about we. He's constantly talking about we. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the apostolic witnesses. But either way, John is testifying to the truthfulness of all that's been seen and all that's been written. So three things I want to point out. Number one, the teaching, the unveiling of God in Christ, the reality of his incarnation, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection does not rest on unstable foundation of some mere wishful thinking or some sort of speculation. It's on facts. It's on facts observed by and authenticated by eyewitnesses of the ministry of Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection. John is affirming that reality. It's factual. Seen it. Been there. Number two, look what it says. John, not only is on facts, but he affirms that he is the author of this gospel account. This is not an eyewitness event described to somebody else, then somebody else, third party, wrote it down. I wrote it, John says. Not someone else, not a ghostwriter. John wrote what happened as the Holy Spirit led him. He did not merely communicate it three, four, five generations. He sat down and he wrote it himself. You have facts, you have he wrote it. And third, look what he says. It's trustworthy. Those around me will, will testify. It's the truth. My testimony is true. I didn't add stuff to it to make Jesus look exaggerated, things he didn't do. And I didn't write stuff down to make him look bad. I'm just writing down the account of what took place so that, he says, you will trust him. You will believe that he is the Christ. He is the Son of God and have life in that name. We know John chapter 20, the purpose statement. Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John's saying, I, I had to pick what to write, what not to write. But I write in these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. He is the Son of God, of the same nature of God. He is deity, and by believing, and by believing, you may have life in his name. And then in the last verse, he said that if I had actually wrote down everything that Jesus did, the whole world couldn't contain the books. Verse 25 to close. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
Hyperbole? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe you're in your 30s, 40s. You wrote down everything you ever said. Write down everything you ever did. Write down every single interaction you ever had. I don't know how many volumes it would be. It would be rather large, and we're just ordinary people. Can you imagine if it was Jesus, the eternal Son of God? See, John is calling us and calling you and I, the readers, to recognize the immeasurable greatness of Jesus who touched the world and left an indelible mark, impression of his beauty, of his glory, of his grace, and his greatness upon humanity. And if you take the prologue, who stresses Jesus' person, he's the eternal God, the eternal Son, he is the one who made the universe, who dwelt among us, we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, that's the prologue, and we connect it to the epilogue, all that Jesus did, we see a beautiful portrait, a Christology, an understanding of who Christ is. He is the eternal God. Now John, if you go back just one chapter, and we'll close here, John chapter 20, verse 28, the conclusion of who that Jesus, all that Jesus is, comes on the lips of, uh, of Thomas. We looked at that, chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas realizes everything Jesus said and did, culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection is true, and he worships him, and he says, my Lord and my God, worship. That, I got it. Jesus turns to Thomas in chapter 20, verse 29, and says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? In other words, you believe, you see me. You see my hands, you see my side. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Okay? Blessed are those who come to realize that, yes, I am Lord, I am God, I am your Lord, your God, your Savior, and receive me. Blessed are you, Thomas, for your description, your, your testimony. Blessed are you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for those things that were written down Blessed are you, and blessed are those who believe because of the testimony. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's the point of the book. That's the reason we have the eyewitness account written down for us, so that we may believe. We have testimony of that belief. So what's the difference between the written testimony and proof? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Now, if you're in the first service, you cannot talk. Okay, this is what we're going to do, and we'll end with this. I have something in this, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. I need three credible witnesses, volunteers. Three credible witnesses and volunteers. I'm serious, come on up. I'll be here all day, it don't matter to me. Oh, we got Ron. All right. One credible, I'm, I'm sorry. That's for you. That's for you. Do we have more pens? No. I don't have, oh, yeah, here it is. Bobby, Ron, and Doug. Okay, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to look what's inside this box here. Don't tell anybody. Just write down. Don't say nothing. Come around. Let me show you what's in this box. All right, write it down. Write it down. Write it down. Don't say it. Just write it down. Hold on to it. Three credible witnesses, okay? That's not eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. Three credible eyewitnesses of what's inside this box. Now, what I want you to do, Ron, is I want you to show everybody and read to them the card. 
Bobby? Role of donuts. Hostess donuts. Very good. Okay. Now, show of hands. How many of you believe inside this box is donuts? Raise your hand. Okay. Pretty credible, right? I mean, it's, okay. I like the way some hostess, you know, it doesn't pass. Okay. Very good. You, you believe. So that you now are testifying or believing and trusting in testimony, written testimony, because you don't have the proof. The proof is in the box. Okay? And how many of you believe? Raise your hand one more time. Okay, eyewitness testimony. Now, and yes, we're going to share them. Now, how many people believe this? Raise your hand. Very good. Okay. So what you have is proof. Yeah, grab them both. That's proof. Coffee's in the back. He wants coffee. There you go. So what you have is proof. And now, written testimony. Now, we don't have physical proof that we saw. What we have is written testimony. We have the written words of a credible eyewitness who saw the empty tomb, who saw the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, who witnessed the life of Jesus, and they are firsthand eyewitness accounts written down, wrote down for us the truth of proof. Let's hear it for our three. We may not have eyewitness proof, but what we have is overwhelming evidence, testimony, written testimony of the perfect life, of the death, of the resurrection of Jesus. Overwhelming evidence, eyewitness testimony. Over 500 people saw Jesus alive. Paul tells us that and says, go ask them, they're still alive. Eyewitness testimony of the proof of the work of Christ. John will go on to say in his letter this, in 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. The life, that's Jesus, was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was from the Father and was made manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he writes, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So hear the gospel call. Hear Jesus calling you. The call of Christ, the risen Lord, to stop, turn, trust. Not the things of this world to justify you, to save you. Come to Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again to bring you into the family of God. To, to, to truly follow Jesus means he becomes everything to us. Being a Christian means following the risen Lord. Jesus committed to him, listening to him in his word, obeying him and allowing him to shape our hearts and life. No one does it perfectly. We will fall, we will fail, we will deny, we will those things and God will restore us but we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We cannot go this way when Jesus is going that way. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's the call of the gospel. And over time, we will reflect the master. The idea of somehow adding Jesus to an already busy life or somehow following him when it's more convenient does not line up with scripture. 
Listen, we will not do it perfectly. I know that. Believe me, it's glaring in my life. But follow Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Everyone's following, seeking something for purpose and value and meaning. Here we see Jesus Christ gave his life, took the wrath against sin that we deserve. He died and was buried and on the third days rose again rose again and by grace and by grace alone he is calling you to turn from your sin and receive the free gift of salvation that can only happen through the work of Christ his death and resurrection of the cross you have the eyewitness testimony you have the written word of God you have the integrity of the gospel writers Jesus is alive and he's calling you and I to follow him father we are thankful for this narrative we have been thankful for this book we're thankful that you have laid out for us the reality of who christ is he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us and his call is by grace and grace alone to turn to turn from sin to trust in you to not follow the things of this world but to follow you and lord even following you does not earn our salvation it is a matter of grace and grace alone And Father, we pray that you would empower us by grace. You would empower us by the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus and not be distracted from the world around us, but to follow him all the days of our life, we pray.